You're listening to Pastor Scott Rising of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled Forged in Fire, recorded on March 24th, 2019. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Scott as he preaches. Hello, Harvest Community Church. It's, it's great to be with you today as we continue in 1 Samuel. Uh, let's not forget where we find ourselves in this epic storyline, right? So last week, if you remember, Saul ordered the, the slaughter of 85 priests. And, and Doeg didn't stop there, right? If you remember, he destroyed the city of Nob. And, and he killed everything that came in his path, everything that moved, including the Bible says both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. I mean, he went, he went nuts, right? The wicked king Saul ordered this unholy war, therefore showing that he will stop at nothing. To, to, to anything that gets in his way, he'll demolish. Right? That's what we see. And, and so while King Saul is busy killing his own people, it seems that the nasty Philistines are an opportunistic bunch, right? I mean, they swoop in, and, and they're, they're trying to steal some grain from the threshing floors. If the Israelites are actually working very hard at harvesting and, and bringing that all in and processing the grain. And so they see this as an opportunity, and so they swoop in to rob them. Meanwhile, the wandering David, right, he's in the forest with his men, when he hears that the people of Keilah, they're, they're being attacked by Philistines. And, and in our time in 1 Samuel today, we're going to see once again that David, we're going to see what he's made of. I mean, that's really what's going on here. As the Lord continues to shape him and pound him into what he's creating him to be, which is a king. Right? So let me ask you a question. Who here has ever watched the show Forged in Fire? Hands up. Oh, yeah, there's a real response there, right? So uh, hands up. Yeah, at, all, at the campuses too, right? All right, so a good many actually. It's a really good show, man. I love this show, right? And I knew exactly nothing about this show until a friend of mine recommended it to me a few years back. I, I didn't know anything about bladesmithing, right? I thought I did, but I actually did not. And now that I'm watching this show, I actually love this show. And, and what I found out is, first off, this is a masculine show. It's just a dude's show, right? And so I hear a couple guys laughing, and that's good. Now, I, I didn't know anything about it, but as I began to watch it, man, these guys are, and gals, by the way, there's some amazing bladesmithing women who are bending metal to their will. I mean, they use fire, they use brute force, they use lots of pounding, and, it, and, and, and as the show goes on, in order to create a weapon that, when they're done, will serve a purpose that it was created for. Now, this, I think, is a dude show, but I know there are many ladies who enjoy it. But when the, the contestants are done, man, the heat of the forge and everything that's going on, they actually turn their weapons in to a panel of judges, right? And, and it's neat because they show this slow motion, intense focus of the close-up as they're pounding on the metal, and, and all this different stuff is going on. The show has three rounds, right? And, and in these rounds, the first round, actually, you have four contestants who are working to make a blade out of whatever metal that the judges provide for them, right? And after one contender is cut, the remaining three, actually, they get a critique on what's going on with their weapon, and they make some adjustments, and then they actually make a handle for it. And the other three, they go in, and they, they compete. 
And the remaining two then are sent back home, okay? And they have five days to go back home to what they call their home forge, which I guess people have, which I found to be amazing, right? And, and they make crazy weapons from the past, and they're given instructions to do that. They've made like a Viking battle axe, right, which I think is pretty cool, a Scottish claymore. They've made the crusader sword, just to name a few. And when they come back, they actually give their weapons to experts. And these experts test it, right? And, and it's, it's usually tested on like a pig or some other carcass, which I find to be awesome also. And, if, and I, just, I just wonder, like, I hope they're not wasting the pig, right? Like they're making bacon from it, but that's another point for another day. And then when they're done, the, the judge, like if it passes the inspection, this dude, he says in the strangest voice, it will kill, right? So if you ever watch the show, I find that to be hilarious. And so the weapon, if it cuts up, if it does everything that it needs to do, the winner of that episode gets $10,000 and they are titled Forged in Fire Champion, right? Now, here's the thing. You're like, why are we talking about this? Well, hang in there because I'm hoping it will all connect, right? Because just like men bend, and women bend metal to their will with fire, and brute force, and lots of pounding, God shapes us, and he molds us many times through fires of affliction. However, it's not until we're actually tested that we actually see what we're made of, right? That's the point. So far in our story with David in 1 Samuel, we've witnessed him as a shepherd boy, right? We've witnessed him as a musician for the king. He is a armor bearer, a, a warrior, right? He, was the king, he is the king's son-in-law, even right now, a writer of psalms. He's going to be the future king. And, but not right now, he's a fugitive, and he's running for his life, which, which really should show us something, right? It should show us that the road to the, the throne or the king for this man is a long road, and it's through a deep valley, and this valley has lots and lots of fire of affliction, as David's seeing right now. And that brings us to our first point on the map. See, the first point on the map is, when under great stress, David seeks the Lord. You might think that's a simple point, but, but actually, I don't know that it is. Because my guess is, my guess is that David is more than willing to go into action, right? I mean, think about this dude. He's not afraid of conflict. Right? If you remember, this man, he has struck down a lion. Right? He has struck down a bear. He struck down Goliath. Right? He has struck down every enemy that has been put in front of him. So right now, he's ready to strike down some more. But the first thing he does is he asks God for direction. And the Lord gives him the green light. He gives him the green light. But David's men, they were not so convinced. They were not so convinced. I'm sure that they're thinking, man, we got enough problems going on right now. we got enough trouble. I mean, King Saul and all these men, they're seeking to kill us, right? And I know you want to do the right thing and you want to go save these people, but I don't want to fight with the Philistines. Can't we just kind of hang out here in the forest? But what we see is that fear is making David's men resistant to move forward. How many times is that true in our own lives, right? I mean, fear immobilizes us many times. We feel like we're walking in quicksand. So David, David once again, he inquires the Lord. And guess what? The Lord did not change his mind at all. The Lord patiently answers him. He says, arise, go down to Kiava, and for I will give the Philistines into your hand. 
All right, so the Lord promises victory, and so David and his men, they go and they attack the Philistines, and, and guess what? They save the day, they save the town. But, but note this, David does not seek self-preservation, which I think is amazing. But instead, he gives his life for the good of others, right? This is what it means to love God and to, to love others. We, we move towards need. We move towards, regardless of discomfort, regardless of danger, people who love God, we love God, we move towards the need as we see it. Remember, Jesus has not called us to safety or even a fair fight. He's not, but he promises victory because he's already overcome, right? He calls us to trust him. That's what he calls us to do. And so as we see, once again, showing that David is a life giver, right? Saul, he's a life taker. Right? David rescues God's people, and we see that Saul attacks God's people. David inquires the Lord. Saul thinks he is the Lord. And there's your contrast. Right? It, if you're at all like me, you've got to be thinking how nice it would be to get such clear direction from God, as he did in this situation. I mean, look at verse 6. It clues us in on how this happens to be. When Abathar escaped to David from Doeg, the crazy man, right? It says that he brought with him an ephod in his hand. And once again, if you're like me, you got to be like, what the heck is that? Because, I, I mean, really, is this not language we use all the time? What is an ephod? Is this like some strange Yahweh, like eight ball, magic eight ball? We just like shake it up. Yes, go attack. Not really. It's not really like that at all. An ephod was actually a close-fitting apron-type thing that, that was a garment worn exclusively by priests. When almost exclusively, when officiating before the altar. And they would have a breastplate. And it was used for receiving revelation from God. So David, man, he seeks the Lord. The Lord answers. My question is, in the midst of our, our, you know, our problems, our temptations, our trials, our afflictions, we might be tempted to think how great it would be to have one of these ephod things, right? I just throw that on, ask God, he could tell me. But we got to remember, man, we, we have something so much greater, someone so much greater than an ephod, right? We have Jesus, the Son of God. We have his spirit. We have his word, right? And so let us be reminded that during our trials, we have a great high priest. Look at what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Man, that's such a good text. It's such a good text because it's true. We do not have an ephod, or at least I don't. Maybe you do, but it's probably not working the way you want it to, right? And we may not have a high priest around, but we have a great high priest, and it's even better. He's even better, right? Because this great high priest, he is Jesus, the Son of God. He has passed through the heavens, and we have access to him. This is no little thing, right? Because he is unlike all other high priests. All other high priests, they've died right? And they remained dead. Jesus lived and died in our place, and he rose victoriously, and he rose from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death, and never to die again. And we have bold access that we can go to him. This high priest is with God above the heavens. 
And he always lives to make intercession for us, which is amazing to me. For the people of God, right? Jesus is always pleading our cause by his blood. Isn't that good? It's such good news. Question, do you and I seek the Lord while we're under stress in the midst of trials and struggle with sin or from illness or battling depression or whatever you find yourself in? See, my concern is is that you don't. Because maybe you have some strange, what I call John Wayne theology, right? You ever heard of it? You might not have heard that term, but I guarantee you've heard some of the phrases. Like, one, God helps those who help themselves. John Wayne said that, not the Bible, right? Actually, I don't even know if John Wayne said that. But here's the deal. God won't give you more than you can handle. Who is here like, that is not true for me, right? Or, Or how about pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and see, this mentality, man, it creeps in, and we think, man, you're right, i got to get this thing, i got to do this thing. But here's the thing. These trite sayings, at best, are half-truths. At best, they're half-truths, and they're not helpful at all. Not for me, because here's the thing. You and I, we need help. We need help desperately. You and I, we are not God. We need God. We have needs. We have many weaknesses, there are times when, when we're confused and, and we're faced with our limitations. And it's in those moments that we are so needy. We're so needy. And it's in those times we must remember that we don't throw on an ephod, right? But we remind ourselves that we're covered by the blood of Christ. And that we can draw near God with confidence. We draw near to the throne of grace. I love that, man. Underline that. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's better than any ephod, I promise you. Right? No matter the trial, Jesus can sympathize with us in our pain, our suffering, our trials. He knows the battle. He knows it, right? Because he's fought. He's ultimately won the victory. He's won the war against our greatest enemies. He's done it all. And so we can draw near to him. And he's made a way for us to draw near to God. And so just like David, we can find ourselves in all kinds of problems. And we must know where to turn. And we turn to Christ. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean our problems will just magically go away, as David's about to find out. See, David seeks the Lord, but trouble keeps seeking David as we continue, right? See, David may have defeated the Philistines, but his troubles have not ended. Let's look at 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read them again. It says, Now it was told that Saul, that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself in by entering a town that, that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah and besiege David and his men. Okay, this is a day before walkie-talkies, text messaging, instant messaging, but somehow they got the word out, right? Because Saul hears this, and he's like, we got to go. I heard about David. We've got to go and attack this man and this town. And he rushes there because he wrongly thinks that God is going to hand David over to the hands of this madman, which is hilarious to me, right? Because how deranged is Saul? How deranged is this man to think that God is still on his side? He's not on his side. Saul thinks that God works for him, which is hilarious. And he's dead wrong as he's going to find out. But look how David responds. Look at 9 through 12, verses 9 through 12. See, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. 
Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Man, David once again seeks the Lord by using the ephod to find out from God that Saul is coming to kill David and his men. Not only that, but the the people of Keilah, they're going to betray David to Saul, which I think is crazy. I mean, so much for a thank you. (laughs) He, He just brought his men, put them in danger, put himself in danger to save them, and they betray him. And this, no doubt, is a difficult pill for David to swallow as he's going to be turned over to Saul by the people that he just came to save. Which shows us, once again, this is the second point. Seeking and obeying God does not lead to a trouble-free life. Sometimes it brings quite the opposite. Which, I mean, that's not our normal thinking. But that's the case. See, David may be rejected by men. That's what's happening. But he is not rejected by God. And not only that, but God preserves him and he leads him to safety. David is learning that if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's something that we need to remind ourselves all the time, Christian. See, God continues to deliver him from all these dangers. And here's the thing. David's being tested. Tested through fires of affliction. See, see listen to what Proverbs 17.3 says. It says this, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. Man, God is testing this man's heart. God is testing his heart and he's preparing him to be king. He's learning how to face adversity and to be courageous, right? Not only that, but he is learning how to handle his men. And he's also learning how to handle himself as he's being led by God, which is what we see. He's learning to trust God, not men. He's learning that every time these things happen. And with each and every fiery affliction, God is growing David in grace. That's what we see. It's only through a miracle of God's grace that he doesn't turn to self-pity in a moment. But instead, once again, he turns to the Lord. He continues to turn to the Lord. How about you? How about you? I don't know what trial you're facing. God does, and he cares. But how about you? Have you been betrayed? Right? Have you, have you been hurt in life? Are you hurting in life? How about maybe in ministry? These things happen. Have you ever, have you, as that happens, have you, allowed, have you allowed this to harden your heart towards God or people? Because it could happen very easily. Or do you allow, by God's grace, the fire of affliction to shape you into an instrument of God's love and healing for his glory, and for your ultimate good, and for your joy, and for the good of the people that you come in contact with. Because that's what God's doing. He's at work. He never wastes suffering. He never wastes pain. He always forces it to the good who are called and who love him. And so look at Isaiah 48, 10 through 11 with me. It says, Behold, I have refined you. He's talking about the people of God, Israel. But not as silver... I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, God says, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? 
my glory I will not give to another. And so we see that God does put us in the furnace of affliction, but he has a purpose. See, see, God has much to say about affliction for his people. See, God will use many severe means in order to make us the people he desires us to be for his glory. It's not, always, it's not always enjoyable when that pain comes. That's why we need to remind ourselves of God's goodness. See, not one of God's children have ever escaped the furnace of affliction. Think about it. Listen, Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. We have a good God. He's fighting for us, not against us. And, and here's the thing. Think about it. As we've been reading the Bible, Joseph, right, in Genesis, Joseph was beat. He was left for dead. He was sold into slavery. And many other things happened to this man, right? How about Moses? He suffered at the hands of the Egyptians and God's people. He suffered. Think about Job. He lost his possession. He lost his children. He lost his health. Many afflictions. Isaiah and Jeremiah, we find they were treated cruelly for the length of their ministry, Right? And, and Daniel was put into the lion's den. Paul was beaten and thrown in prison. And even Jesus, even Jesus was placed in the furnace of affliction, as the Bible says, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we learned that he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. See, see Jesus, just like David, knows all too well about being betrayed. Right? Think about it. Jesus came to save his own people, and, and what happened? His own people did not receive him. They rejected him. Peter denied him. Saul betrayed him. Not Saul. Sorry about that. Judas betrayed him. Right? Saul did too as he was persecuting the church. And then Jesus saved him. Right? Changed his name to Paul. Why? Why did Jesus have to suffer? See, this makes no sense to someone who does not understand the gospel. Right? Jesus could have ripped open the sky and just stepped into history and showed up in power and glory. He could have destroyed all of his enemies, right? Yeah, say yes. Yeah, he could have. Now, the problem is, if he would have done that, you and I and everyone else, we're all by nature enemies of God. So that's bad news if that happens. So get this, if Jesus would have came in power and in glory the first time, this would have meant judgment and destruction for everybody. But instead, man, he came in kindness. He came in mercy. Jesus came in humility as a baby. He, he laid aside this, and, and he suffered in his life and in his death, and he willingly went to a cross as a substitute where he received, listen, the punishment for our sins so that what? He can offer an opportunity for salvation to sinners like you and me. He became an enemy so the enemies like you and I could become sons and daughters. This is the gospel. This is the beauty. Jesus died in our place. That's the beauty of the gospel. He took the punishment and the judgment that you and I deserve so that we could enjoy life with the Father rather than face the judgment we deserve. And so, church, never forget while you're in the furnace of affliction that no matter how painful it is, no matter how painful, I know some of it's very painful. I know some of your stories right now. I really do. I'm seeing one young lady that I'm thinking about. It's always less than we deserve. It's always less than we deserve. Because if God treated us as our sins deserve, rather, we would be cast in hell forever. But instead, man, because of grace, 
because of mercy, because of the blood of Christ, we never have to suffer as we deserve. It's for a moment. Always. It's always for a moment. Listen to how, listen to how 1 Peter 3.18 breaks down the gospel. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Right? Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring us to God. This is the good news, right? And so, man, God is so good. And we need reminded of that gospel every day. It is not just something that we enter into, all right, I got saved, I don't need the gospel, now I just keep growing into these bigger, deeper, knowledgeable things. You don't move past the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the good news every day. We need to remind ourselves of that because many times we forget that God is good. And every time that you look at the cross, you need to be reminded that God is amazing. He's amazing. And don't forget that there's an empty grave, right? Because Jesus resurrected into new life. And he's made a way for us to come to the Father. So we must never forget that as we walk through difficult valleys. See, the temptation in those moments is to curl up under a shade tree, and just wait till Jesus returns to bring us to himself, right? But, but here's the thing. You and I, we have to fight this temptation because many times it's in the trial that the Lord is preparing us. He's preparing us for God's glory. He's preparing us to be an instrument of good to the people around us. And ultimately, even in the suffering, God's forcing joy into it. And you might be thinking, oh, you had me till you said that. But I want you to know It's when you're brought low many times that you see God's faithfulness and there's a deep resounding joy that you just know, he's got me. He's got me. This situation, it stinks. It's not fun. I'm not enjoying it. But my God has got me. And that leads to joy. Not like yippy skippy jumping around. Yay! Everything's awesome. I'm not talking that. I'm talking a joy that gives your heart rest. Because God's done it all. And so we fight this temptation. And and here's the thing. David knows this. And and this is why he continues to seek to rest in the hand of God's sovereignty as he actively obeys God. Look how it all ends, right, in this, this part of the chapter. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me. It says, Then David and his men, who were about 600, 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they were... And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. Man, I I love that last section. God did not give him into his hand. Oh, I love that because it it displays God's sovereignty, his almighty power, right? And just to make sure that we're all on the same page when I say sovereign, what I mean by that is that God has supreme authority over all things. He alone is the supreme ruler of everything and everyone. Know this, that the fate of every human in every town, in every city, in every suburb, it's all in the hands of an almighty sovereign God. That should bring you peace. This should bring you absolute peace because David absolutely, he knows this and he believes this because much of our understanding about God's sovereignty comes from David's writings in the book of Psalms. In the midst of suffering, David suffered much from the hands of Saul. But here's the thing, and many other enemies, but he knew that God was good and that he was in control, that he was sovereign. Listen to what he says in Psalm 31, 15. 
He says, God, my times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Man, he knows. Just like David, you and I should expect to suffer. You should expect it. Not everyone suffers at the same level, but you and I all, if you live long enough, you're going to suffer. But just like David entrusted himself to the hands of Sovereign Father and followed him wherever he led, you and I can do that. We can do that too. God will give you the grace, Christian. Now, all too often, though, I find that many people misunderstand and misapply God's sovereignty in the moments of suffering for a means of, let's, let's call it passive disobedience. We say that God is all-powerful. We say he's in control of all things. And, and then we say something like this. And many times this can be said in a, in a healthy way, but they, we say this, I'm going to just let go and let God. Now, you might have said that, and that might have meant something to you that means something different to me than when I hear it. Because many times when people say that, it sounds nice and all, but what they really mean, what they're really saying is that they expect God to just take all our problems away, all our suffering away, and I don't have to obey. I'll just sit here. That's not what it means to wait on the Lord. It's not what it means. See, like, like seeking God, we're called to do that in the midst of suffering. He gives us the grace to do that through prayer, through reading the Bible, through receiving counsel from other wisdom and people that he's put in your life, worshiping Jesus in in the church gathering, and by walking by faith in the midst of it, in the middle of the suffering. He gives us the grace to do that. Now here's a quote that I think gets at the heart of what I'm trying to communicate. A.A. Hodge, he's a pointy-headed guy, don't worry about it, you can look him up later if you want. But listen to this hilarious interplay that he has. I think this gets at it, right? So someone asked him, they said this, does God know the day you'll die? And he says, yes. Has he appointed that day? He said, yes. Can you do anything to change that day? He says, no. Then why do you eat? He says, to live. What happens if you don't eat? He says, you die. Okay, then if you don't eat and die then would that be the day that God had appointed for you to die? And he says, quit asking stupid questions and just eat. (laughs) Eating is the preordained way God has appointed you to live. Right? I mean, this is getting at the heart of it because here's the thing. It is pride and unbelief that sits around and uses language of God's sovereignty for passive disobedience. That's what it is. It's outright rebellion against God. To sit around. Listen, suffering is not an excuse for sinning. Ever. Ever. And I know. It's easy to want to do that. It's easy to want to self-medicate by running to things that aren't God. But it leads to more harm. It leads to more pain. We must remember that God has given us His Spirit. We must remember that. And He's given us grace to seek the Lord through prayer during the difficulties of affliction. So what do we do when we're in the furnace? What do we do? That's point three. Listen, with each trial and affliction, we must seek God through prayer. We must actively obey and rest in the hands of our sovereign Father as we walk by faith. This is exactly what David did as he took refuge in his flight. Right? No doubt, no doubt this is not the path that he would have chose for himself. And so when our plans are detoured and we're redirected, it's then that we find out really who's directing our steps, right? Proverbs 16, 9 says this, 
The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so when I, when I read that text, I'm always reminded of a time that I was with Pastor Mike, and we were, we were talking, and I think it was a staff meeting, and, and there were just things that we thought, man, this should just make sense, right? The Lord should just be opening up the door for that. And he, he said in a moment, and I thought, well, that's profound. He said, we're, you know, it feels like right now we're just like babies just crawling around, and we think, yeah, this is going to work. And he just, you know, puts a chair in front of us, redirects us, moves us. And so I, I love that picture because what a good father that we have. He continues to move us down the path that he wants us to go. But that doesn't mean we don't crawl. We crawl. But it's the Lord that directs our steps. When we find ourselves stuck or things seem to be moving in a direction that we did not plan, we must take heart and keep ourselves true to God as we trust that he is navigating and directing our steps. It should bring us comfort. See, the walk of faith is a hard, long walk. It is, no doubt. Hardship is a must. It's not an option, though. It's not. Hang in there. See, the road to the throne for David, it's a long road. And it is through the valley of suffering and through the fires of affliction. But church, listen, listen. As we continue to walk with God, know this. Acts 14.22 says that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? And, And see here, don't quit. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Do not quit. You might be tempted to quit. You might be tempted to just tap out and say, I'm done. Turn around. I'm putting all my chips in. I quit. I'm done. Well, John Newton, I want to quote this man because I think this is, a, this is a great point. You need to be reminded of where you're going. If you're in Christ, you're headed to glory. So he says this. Suppose a man was going to New York, right? And he was taking possession of a large estate. And his carriage, let's say it breaks down a mile before he gets to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out of all the remaining mile. Oh, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Do you get it? He's heading to get a large estate. Walk. Walk. Glory's right in front of you. Christian, don't quit. Don't quit. You're almost there. You're like, I'm really young. You're still almost there. I promise you, because this thing goes quick. We must endure. And we must know that if you do endure, well, listen to this, man. If you endure in your faith while the furnace of trial and difficulty, that's God's sovereign, miraculous grace working in your lives. He's the one upholding you. You can trust him. See, God is at work for his glory and for his name and for the good of his church as he shapes and as he molds us into the instruments of grace that he wants us to be. Look at how Ephesians 2.10 says it. Listen. So this is coming right out of we are saved by grace, right? Alone, by faith alone. But know this, Christian. That grace, that faith, it never remains alone. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved by the works of Jesus Christ. But if you are saved, you will produce good works. And, and, and listen, that's fruit, not root, right? That's God doing that in you. And so look at Ephesians 2.10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works for you just to walk into. And I love that it says we are his workmanship. Right? Because, listen, you could say, you could replace that word with handiwork, 
work of art. You can even say masterpiece. Do you ever think about the church being God's masterpiece? And he is making us into this holy bride, which is beautiful, created in Christ Jesus. That's just not like some tag-on words. It means if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, if you're, you're trusting in him and all that he's done in his life, his death, and his resurrection, that, that he's got you. And he's, he's working on you. He's making you beautiful. Right? Because we don't, he doesn't save us because we're beautiful. No, it's, it's in spite of us. It's because he's good. It's because he's awesome. And he makes us beautiful. Why? Because he's good like that. And we can trust him so that we can display his grace by performing good works. It makes him look good. And so speaking of that, listen, Friday night service. Friday night service, right? Man, there's a lot of folks showing up, which we praise God for, we thank God for. But there's a need. And, and, and here's the thing, man. I'm always tempted to like, not do this as far as bringing up the need because I don't want someone to be grudgingly saying, well, I guess I'll fill it. But listen, I'm telling you, Gail doesn't want that. Right? What we want is we want some people who hear about a need. And just like David ran to people in need, that you'll hear this. And I've been praying all day that God would lay it on the hearts of people, no matter what campus you worship Jesus at. Right? Because Harvest Community Church is one church that meets in four locations. But on our Friday night service, we are we're like bursting at the seams, which is, a, praise God, that's a wonderful, I don't even want to call it a problem. It's a privilege. It's a joy. Thank you, Lord. But we have a need. We have a need for people to serve. And so, listen, if you're hearing my voice at any of the campuses, I want you to really consider going and being a part of that. Right? So worship at your location on Sunday and come serve on Friday night. Gail and her team, they could use your help. There are children who could use you to bring good news to them. There's no higher privilege than that, by the way. I mean, this is the next generation, right? This is the next generation. And we put a lot of work and effort towards making sure that we're clean and clear on the gospel. You're going to love it. If you do it, I guarantee you will be blessed. I guarantee it. Because many times people find themselves really worn out and just kind of la, 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 about the Christian life. And it's because they're bored. It's because they're bored. They're, they're just consuming, right? Don't do that, man. Get in the game. I guarantee you God will give you the grace and the energy as you do that to just overwhelm yourself with his kindness, with his goodness. The more you pour out, the more he will put in. And so if you will consider that, do me a favor, on your Connect card, and you're like, man, I might already pass that in. All right, get another one. Email the office and let them know that you would be delighted, delighted to serve Harvest Kids in Catanning on Friday night. Would you do that? Would you consider that? I would say prayerfully consider that, and then just know that the Lord would love you to do that. Right? Like, what are you going to pray? No, I don't want you to serve the kids. (laughs) He wants you to serve! He's created for good works. I think this is good works. So, all right, end of that side here. Listen, grace abounds during the difficulties of life so that, that we may abound in good works. Man, don't forget that. So, so that when it's all said and done, right, instead of hearing, it will kill, right, you, you might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They will love. <laughs> they will love. That's what we're here for. We're to love God, right? We're to love our neighbors. We're to walk with God. We're to love our neighbors and we're to reach the lost. We're to seek them, right? This is why we're here. Jesus said, you will know my disciples by the way that they love one another. That's what he's forming in you. 
And he has to sometimes allow the suffering to come so that he can do the good work in it. But you can trust your heavenly father. He's good. And God, oh man, continue to do that in us for your glory. So Christian, listen, be of good cheer. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then know this, that God is for you, right? He's for you. Like, he doesn't just tolerate you, right? He's, he's actually for you. He delights in you. You're in Christ. He delights in Christ. This is good news. Do you ever think about the fact that God, even in the midst of your trials, he's smiling down upon you? And he's like, hang in there. I know you got a mile to go, and your carriage is breaking down. And I know you're wringing your hands, but hang in there because I'm going to get you to the end, right? You're coming and you're going to receive something far greater than you could ever imagine. And all these light momentary afflictions, they're just preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that is to come. Hang in there. Don't give up and know that he's at work. It's a work. And there are many blessings to be found through the trials, through the afflictions, because you have a God that's forcing it all to your good, your ultimate good. So you can trust him. So keep fighting the good fight of faith, church. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.